I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from Gabrielum Archangelum, a piece unique to the Anne Boleyn Songbook. And this is the first in a series of podcasts supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Speminalium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and York University on that collection of music. Deanne Williams, professor in English at York University and Killam Research Fellow, has been working on the Anne Boleyn Songbook and, more generally, on girls as book owners and performers in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Listen to this chat about the book I had with her in her office at the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, and then to a performance of the whole of the anonymous Gabriellum Archangelum. Uh, now, Diane, uh, you told me that you recently actually had the Anne Boleyn songbook in your hand. Uh, where did you do that? And can you describe us to us what it looks like and everything? Yes, uh, last March, um, last month, I uh, went on a research trip to England and I had the great good fortune of having access to the uh, Anne Boleyn manuscript at the Royal College of Music in London. And it's, uh, what is it like? Is it thick? Does it smell? (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely beautiful. It's um, larger than a paperback. It's about the size of a good hardcover. Uh, 20 centimeters by 30 centimeters uh, in um, uh, its measurements and it is it has been beautifully rebound um, in 2016 in very very soft dark brown leather Um, and so it looks extremely handsome Uh, prior to that it had a Victorian binding which I did not see um, but I understand nobody liked it. <laughs> they thought it was quite ugly. So everyone's delighted with the, the new look of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And when you open it up, it's got these pieces of music written out. And they're, they're kind of fancy, most of them, I understand. The, they're all decorated. These are decorated. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the pages um, of the manuscript, there are 134 pages. Um, uh, so, well, 268 pages, 134 folia. Um, mm-hmm. And they are uh, beautifully uh, decorated for the first 20 or so pages or so have um, beautiful decorated initials in uh, red and blue ink. Um, sometimes just the initials are decorated and sometimes they are augmented with images of people, men and women, of um, flowers and leaves and mythological beasts. And there's, a, you say that it's, these earlier ones are decorated, so there might be different people have written in it at different times, do you think? Or what? Yeah, it was really interesting for me to be able to see the manuscript in person. There are all kinds of things you can kind of learn about a text um, when you're actually able to see it and hold it in your hands that you perhaps don't pay as much attention to when you are looking at a digital copy mm-hmm. uh, or certainly a modern edition. So one of the things that really struck me was how the first 20 or so pages um, are very attentively and beautifully decorated, um, very carefully uh, written, a very fine uh, hand, but they are also heavily corrected. Mm -hmm. So what happened was someone went back and corrected them who knew about music, 
and was able to make changes so that the pages were actually workable for a musician's eye, not just beautiful mm-hmm. pretty pictures. Yeah, so it's not just at. it's not just to uh, like to admire the pic- the paintings and things like this. Exactly. So it, it the, it's there's a sense that the that the the value that the purpose of the manuscript evolved over the course of its creation so that it was originally perhaps more of a presentation copy Mm -hmm. Um, and then as it became used by actual musicians and singers they'd say that's a wrong note let's correct correct it they'd (laughs) scribble that in and as as musicians do Mm -hmm. Um, and so the subsequent hands that that added to the manuscript um, are not as beautiful they are quite uh, messy in some cases and um, very workmanly in any case um, but they are much more musically accurate. You don't see as many corrections. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. someone who knows about music continued the creation of the manuscript as it became purposed for a, uh, an active musical community. Yeah, in fact, I've, I've seen, you were say, talking about digital copies, I've seen, of course, the pictures, and it's in what we call, what it's sometimes called, um, pseudo-score. So if I say score to somebody now, they, you know, the first, everybody's first note, lines up the parts are s-a-t-b one above another and the line notes line up as they sound with this kind of score um on the top left of a facing is the all of the soprano part and then they skip a line and then there's all of the alto part and then the on the top right all of the tenor parts and then skip a line all of the bass parts so all the parts are on one page so score but it they're not lined up it yeah. Uh, vertically in the same way uh, that we'd expect a score to be uh, nowadays. I think it's also different from uh, other medieval and early modern music manuscripts because it's intended for singers. Mm-hmm. So all of the all of the musical parts are facing in the same direction. So four mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. can stand together and yeah. all read the parts, uh, the musical parts together, as opposed to for... Uh, uh, musicians playing instruments where they're seated around a table and the music is uh, uh, printed and facing in different directions. Also commonly for choirs in the time you'd have what are called part books so you if you were singing soprano you just get the book with all the notes that the soprano sings and uh, the alto would get the alto parts and, and so on. And that's kind of like plays a bit later. Uh, you only get, if you're, if you're an actor in Shakespeare's theatre, you only get your own part with a few cues written in, right? So it's more like that. So it, it's not really a choir book. But we can talk about more of this more when we're talking about performance practice. Yeah, music. well, what I think is interesting about that is, is that what that means, I think, is that the manuscript is intended as some kind of permanent record, right, so that all mm-hmm. of the parts are recorded in it, yeah, yeah. not and just for one person. It, and as you say, it, the corrections and things suggest it's, a, it's, it's being performed off. There's a lot that, that, can, that the book can tell mm-hmm. us by this pagination, by yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, and the or, or, ordinatio, the, mm-hmm. the, the organization of the, of the information on the page um, can tell us a lot about how the book was used. So not in church, right, mm-hmm. as some kind of permanent record so that all the parts are contained um, together, mm-hmm. uh, and for some kind of uh, private domestic, uh, p- domestic performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've just, anyway, I've been calling this the Anne Boleyn songbook. Why in, Why am I doing that? Tell us why we think it's got anything to do with her. 
Well, on one of the pages in the manuscript, there is a signature that says, A. Boleyn, mm -hmm. now thus, her motto, um, and four little musical notes. And so uh, Edward Lewinsky, a famous musicologist from the uh, early 20th century, mid -20th early mid-20th century, um, identified it as uh, having belonged to Anne Boleyn. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, I don't think anyone had actually seen or, or noted the, uh, the inscription. Um, it was in the previous binding simply uh, um, indicated um, 16th century motets. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Lewinsky uh, had the theory that the book was a love token, a gift to Anne Boleyn from her court lutenist, Mark Smeaton. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the theory that held um, until uh, subsequent musicologists, Lisa Erkovich um, and others have proposed a variety of different uh, alternative uh, sources and stories behind the manuscript. Generally now, it's considered to uh, have, yes, belonged to Anne Boleyn, but also to have um, originated not in the English court of the mid-16th century, but in fact in the French court of the late 15th or early 16th century, which corresponds really well with what we know about Anne Boleyn's own biography. Mm -hmm. So tell us about how it might have got into her hands. Where What was her, I'm going to call it a career, even though she's a fairly little girl. She's already, um, is it, should we call it work? Let's call it work. We can call it work. She was being groomed for a position at court from her very earliest years. At the age of either 7 or 14 or so, she was sent, we're not clear about her birth date, so that's why mm -hmm. we're speculating about what age she was. She was sent by her father, Thomas Boleyn, who was a dip diplomat and careerist and highly ambitious person, um, to the court of Margaret of Austria. And Margaret of Austria ran at her court a kind of little finishing school. Where is she at? Where, where is she? She's in Belgium. She's mm -hmm. in a place called Mecheln um, ah. in what is now Belgium. Um, she had a summer home in Terverden, which is where Anne Boleyn wrote to her father, um, uh, saying all was well um, with Margaret of Austria, and she was learning uh, to speak French very well, which was the mm -hmm. primary reason why she was sent to um, to this to the court of Margaret of Austria. The language of diplomacy in the 16th century, I think. Yes. Safe to say. Exactly. And so Margaret of Austria is the um, she's sort of the viceroy in the Low Countries, um, uh, and so it's quite a high, it's quite a high court to be at. Yes, and she is charged with the upbringings of various future heads of state. Mm -hmm. And so there's Anne with with her very right, yeah. very classy playmates. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and then where does she go from there? She ends up at briefly at the court of Mary Tudor, who was the sister of Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Tudor agreed, her brother asked her a big favor, to marry this um, very, very old King of France, Louis Douze, who <laughs> died a few weeks into their marriage. And so <laughs> Anne Boleyn was part of that very short-lived uh, court of, mm -hmm. of Mary. Uh, the intention being that she was someone who knew very well the ways of the uh, of the French court, but also uh, someone who um, was was English um, by birth, and so could have that connection to Mary. So following that, she ended up in the court of Claude de France. Mm -hmm. uh, Claude was the daughter of Louis Duse, and she 
was uh, had a very uh, cultivated, um, particularly a musical, but mm. also literary um, uh, court in France. And Anne Boleyn uh, spent many years at the court of Claude de France. And so how do we think then this book got into her hands? And what was, where's this book from? How did it come to be this present? Who was it presented to if it was indeed a presentation piece at first? It, it's not clear how she acquired it. If it had been formally presented to her, there would have been perhaps more of a formal indication of that in the manuscript, mm-hmm. although evidence of that may also have disappeared over time. All we have is the signature embedded deep within the manuscript. It's possible that Anne uh, Boleyn acquired it uh, perhaps as a kind of a hand-me-down, um, someone who had acquired it um, as, a, as a more formal example of music um, that then became used in a domestic context um, by singers. Uh, Anne Boleyn may have been participating in that, and it may have been a gift to her in an informal kind of a way. Uh, here, take this book. Uh, clearly, mm-hmm. you like music. Uh, do what you like with it, and then it would have been added to over time, um, which explains the subsequent scribes, which were um, more uh, musically accurate. Uh, what do we think the book was put together for? Uh, with uh, from re- looking at the repertoire, what do we think the book might have been put together for? And is just a bunch of fun tunes, or? The tunes are, it seems, quite carefully selected. They are by the uh, sort of greatest court composers Mm -hmm. of the Franco-Flemish courts um, in the 15th and 16th century. Uh, Loisé Compère, Jean Mouton. um, Josquin as well, yes. And um, they... uh, so, so they are um, very well-regarded, very celebrated composers. And the songs that are collected are many of them motets, sung mm-hmm. in multiple parts, and many of them with a kind of biblical uh, connection, songs about the Song of Songs, for example, or the Annunciation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Mary, uh, which we'll hear more about in a subsequent episode, a lot of things about Mary and a number of things, uh, a number of texts from the Song of Songs in there as well. Right, which makes it possible for us, perhaps fancifully, mm-hmm. to think retrospectively about the way in which these songs might have signified in the context of Anne Boleyn's biography. So we think about a song about the Song of Songs, the, uh, the adoration, the erotic admiration of the bridegroom for the bride, and we can think about the way in which Anne Boleyn was herself beloved and courted by Henry VIII. We can think about a song uh, about the Annunciation, Paranympha Salutat Virginum, for example, and we can think about the way in which childbirth was such a uh, heavily freighted issue for Anne Boleyn. The expectation was that she was going to produce the male heir that Catherine of Aragon had failed to do. In fact, we're, we'll probably hear after this uh, uh, Gabrielum Archangelum, uh, one of these um, Annunciation texts that you're talking about. Uh, which also focuses on the impregnation of the womb, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes me think about the way in which there was such close attention paid to the medical details of the workings of Anne's mm-hmm, womb, women mm-hmm. at court, because they were the vessels for mm-hmm. the future generations. Um, their bodies were subject to tremendous scrutiny, and their purpose was to procreate. 
possibly for a royal wedding? Having spent the time with the manuscript that I have, I feel that it is a work of, um, of, of serious attention to music rather than serious attention to a formal occasion. Mm -hmm. I think that I would like to connect this book with the many other French volumes that my colleague James Carley has written about that Anne was particularly attached to and that she had sent to her and that she carried with her from France. Anne was tremendously attached to the literature of France as well as to the French beginnings of the English Reformation. And I would think that I would place this book on that bookshelf, mm -hmm. not on a bookshelf with other presentation copies of fancy mm -hmm. things that they received as wedding gifts. Just to finish off, why don't you tell us more generally about your work on girl performers and what you're doing? Well, I came to this project on Anne Boleyn because I'm really interested in the cultural contributions of young girls in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. I started off um, the, um, working on this topic with a book on Shakespeare's girl characters called Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood. Um, and when I finished that book, I found that what I was really inspired to do was to go and uncover what actual historical girls were doing uh, in Shakespeare's time, but also in the, in the decades immediately after his life and also in the centuries before. So I've been working on girls as actors, girls as singers, girls as dancers, and also girls as translators, girls as readers, and girls as book collectors. And Anne Boleyn is a really important figure for my work because she was so culturally active in so many ways, but also because her girlhood is such a rich uh, space to explore the idea of her education at the, uh, at the court of Margaret of Austria, learning French, um, the, uh, the expansion of that knowledge at the uh, extremely cultivated court of Claude de France, and the way that she then takes this, um, th this, uh, this education and brings it back to England as an adult. She was someone who was known for her ability to, to sing and dance and play musical instruments, um, as well as her incredible, charming uh, <laughs> persona and conversation. And all of this was uh, acquired through a, a, a girlhood that was spent, as you put it, working. That was me talking to Professor Deanne Williams. Now let's hear Gabriellum Archangelum by an anonymous composer sung by the musicians in Ordinary. Julia Morrison singing the treble part, Whitney O'Hearn singing the alto part, led by Hallie Fischel, Musicians in Ordinary's other artistic director, singing the mezzo-soprano part. <laughs> 